This is Talks with Petrisol, and today we have as our guest Amir Nashat. Welcome. Thank you, Petri. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. Great to see you. Um, it sounded like uh, you become a VC as an accident. How can that happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm old enough that um, most people that became VCs in my generation was almost always by accident. Um, so we, uh, I started out as a scientist actually, and um, was working in a, in a laboratory in biomedical and bioengineering. And over the course of the, um, my research, you know, I ended up working with a number of people who were starting companies and spinning them out. And then I, you know, was a student, you know, uh, in Massachusetts, in Boston, and there was this group of people that had like funded this company and I needed a job really badly because I was getting my, I was finishing my PhD. So my office mate, who was the founder of the company said, well, you know, why don't you just come work at our company? And, but I had to interview with these people and, and they, and they had offices in a place I needed to like borrow my friend's car and there was like no transportation. It was like a total hassle. Um, ended up meeting these people and they were all really nice, but I didn't know what they did. You know, they kept saying, oh, we're venture capitalists, but I had no idea what a venture capitalist was. And, um, but they were very interesting. You know, one of my partners in the early days had written the protocol for ethernet. And so he had founded a company called 3Com and his name's Bob Metcalf, really wonderful. Um, so, you know, I got to meet like, you know, the guy who wrote the ethernet protocol. And then I met Wow. You know, another person who was there at the very, very early days of Lotus um, and and actually told me this interesting story when I was interviewing. I didn't even know I was interviewing. I was just having these conversations with people um, around different things. You know, about so you were still they, a student at the time? Or? I was finishing. You know, PhDs don't end with a bang. They kind of end with like a clatter. It's like a bunch of stuff that falls on the floor. Um, and so it takes you a while from like when you finish to like finishing papers and closing all the experiments and then transferring the experiments to the next generation student that picks up the projects. And so during that kind of interim period, I was supposed to be working at this startup. And then what happened was after, I don't know, probably 15, 20, um, you know, meetings with different people, maybe less, it felt like it, maybe 10 meetings. I finally turned to my friends and said, you know, I need a job. Like, are we getting a job or not? You know, I don't understand why I have to keep driving out there and meet new people. And what they told me was like, well, the venture capitalists actually would prefer you go work for them, helping them with new companies and things that they were working on. And it turned out that they were just the company that I was going to go work at had already been established. But my, the firm Polaris was just starting a second company, um, in a new area and they had and they needed some support for that so i ended up going at the vc firm but you know working on a project which and you know was hatched um with a number of really you know uh very very exceptional scientists in the massachusetts area um and in germany as well actually um and then a few people at polaris and other vc firms kind of came together and we started this company called al nylum which has gone on to be a very very important company in the pharmaceutical or I would say biotech space. I think there are four medicines on the market now. And that was like the first project I worked on. And and I was and it kind of showed me this this world, which is not strictly venture capital. It's more kind of company creation. You're kind of helping found the companies at the same time that you're helping with all the bring the investment together, et cetera. And then you're also an investor. So it's this very hybrid. This was now 2002. And um 
Polaris. Now they're from... called more like a Y combinators or incubators, yeah. but now but it's this was something else. Now it's common. Back then, I think we were I think we were the only venture firm I knew of that was doing that kind of work. Ourselves and the colleague, the other firm, we were working with Cardinal Partners. We at Polaris had started a number of companies with with that with those groups. Um, actually, my partners had started another company before that called Akamai, which went on to become a very important. Yeah, company. it's very famous. So yeah, it's so you know, two of my partners in the office basically helped. You know, one of my partners, George Kinradis, at the time, he was a venture partner at Polaris. He he was the founding CEO, and you know, again, these companies get kind of created in this strange intersection of early stage venture capitalists and people with ideas. So. It's a very blurry, it can be a very, very exciting, very collaborative um, and kind of a blurry line. You know, of course, there's other companies that I've invested in, we've invested in where, you know, there's a team and there's a CEO and there's a whole management team. And that's more of a traditional investing role. I think if you're going to work at the very early stage, you have to be a little bit more flexible to sometimes, you know, roll up your sleeves and founder or a CEO or, you know, a co-founder or something. And be willing to take that kind of responsibility on also. So it's, you know, my firm, we do a vi wide variety of things and I've been lucky to be in a wide variety of projects, so. So did you actually work in the in, in your first company basically as uh, I think early on, no, I never did. Or... Actually, I never ended up going to that company. It ended up, it was a company called Momenta Pharmaceuticals, which ended up launching a medicine, I think it may have been the fastest medicine to get to a billion dollars in sales or something like that. It, it had a certain distinction when it launched its medicine. So it was a very important company. It was recently acquired by another pharmaceutical firm, but um, I ended up never working there. Um, I've you know been on the kind of startup team for a few of the other investments we've made. Um, and in some cases was kind of instrumental in coming up with the idea and pulling everybody together. So yeah. You mentioned somewhere that you you've been lucky to meet and and work with really exceptional people. Can you elaborate a bit and and something yeah. you know how do you find these good people and and good opportunities as well? Is is there a secret formula for it though? Is it is it like being the right place like you know MIT and? Well, it certainly helps. I mean, I think that each of us has like a process. You know, whatever that you know, I've always said to people, you know, sometimes. People will come by asking for advice on career changes or or you can tell that they're looking for jobs, but they're at this pivot point in their careers, either from science to business or from science to investments or whatever, and or from the company side to the venture side or the investment side. And what I always t try to ask people is to figure out like what is your what is your process for making in making decisions, right? And and it, trying to understand how you made the key decisions in your life and what was the driver that made you choose, let's say, the university you went to if you had a number of choices or once you were done with the university, how you chose which which job you took, you know, which firm you went to or which career path. Um, even, you know, decisions around friends or whatever, you know, significant others. Um, I think that when you figure out what your process is, and then you can then then you have to ask the second question, which is, am I has that worked for me or has that not worked for me? Like, am I generally really happy with all the decisions I made, or, you know, has everything always turned out like backwards? And and I call it the George Costanza Costanza rule from Seinfeld, which was he was a character on the show, and 
and he realized that his decisions were terrible. So he, for a period of time, decided to do the opposite of everything that came to his mind. And he ended up becoming like wildly successful for a certain number of episodes. I don't remember how long. And um, so I always feel like if you think things have gone well, you just keep doing what you've been doing. If you think things are going poorly, you try to reverse it. But the trick is to figure out what is your process, you know? And for me, as I've done that, you know, my process has always been weirdly to not have a predetermined goal or notion. So I don't have goals. I don't have this idea that, oh, I want to be X or I want to be Y. I want to be a professor, et cetera. I just found myself always willing to kind of work with people I found really curious and interesting and smarter than me and like had like what just I could tell I was going to learn a lot being around them, whether that was my friends or whether that was, um, you know, professors I chose to work with. They were just interesting people that if by my definition, I mean, everybody thinks, you know, but they, they tended to have a broad range of interests um, and they tended to be more than just technical. I mean, again, my background is a technical background. I was an engineer um, and they tended to have a very strong social side in the cup, but they were also very technically proficient. And somehow I just knew that they were very curious about things outside of the discipline that they were in. And so I, I was always intrigued by that. And that's kind of how I've made decisions. And so if you look at the companies I've been involved in, you know, they've tended to have for either even choosing to come to Polaris where I work now, you know, I'm, I'm a partner at the firm. What attracted me to Polaris was that I was meeting the guy. I was, I thought I was talking to a bunch of biotech investors, but I was meeting the person who wrote the protocol for ethernet. I was meeting the person who was telling me stories about the early days of, uh, you know, tech and biotech. I was meeting, you know, my partner, George Conradis, you know, he was a venture partner then who was one of the first people of IBM. I mean, he joined IBM in I think the sixties. I mean, you know, like really the go, go, go time of IBM, you know? And so it was just amazing stories I was hearing. And I just could tell this was a very diverse group and that I was going to have a lot of fun. And then the details would be worked out later. And that tends to be the way I decide on, on whether what to be involved in or what to do is, you know, I, you know, I just find interesting people that tell me something I didn't know about before. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. And then I figured it would just be fun hanging out with them. Um, I think there's probably a lot more process to it. Usually, you know, there's an idea they have, the idea has, you know, a certain opportunity around it and all that. So I think in their minds, it's more, more structured, but I, but if I really dig down, I would say that I'm attracted to people and that's how I tend to make the decisions I make. Um, but I don't know, but you know, everyone has their own process. So that's kind of how I've done it. In terms of your question of how do I meet people? I, you know, I'm just extremely, I, I just found, you know, my, my, my family makes fun of me because I really am just curious about people and, and I'm just really curious. And so when, when someone's taught, I have no problem engaging with almost anybody around a subject that, you know, like they'll tell me, oh, you know, like I'll meet someone and they'll be, you know, you'll quickly discover that they're very, very good at some particular thing like fishing or something. And I just want to know more about it. Like how did they learn, you know, what did they learn from their grandfather or their father or their mother? Like how did they, and you know, the, I, I think just being curious about what makes people tick has landed me into places with just cool people, you know? And I think a lot of people are cool if you just take the time to get to know them. I think other people, 
tend to try to meet, you know, people with that are of influence, you know, like influential people, you know, like they try to kind of, and I don't know that that hasn't really worked for me. I mean, you know, my, my approach has been more to find curiosity inside anybody. And that's always led me to interesting situations. So, so how does it work with uh, new deals, you know, for the VC company as well? Uh, do you, because first time founders, you know, they, they, they don't have, they, they don't tend to have the track record already. So you, you have to find it somewhere. And is it a curiosity? Do you pick them from the university or how, how does it work? Yeah, I think that my, you know, I, if you if you were to be very very honest about the investments I've made or the projects I've worked on or you know helped co-found, it's always been usually a a combination of people who are very experienced at biotech or have started companies before, as academics or university you know professors etc., and someone new someone younger that they've kind of connected with and it's that combination of the two that you know so I. You know, I think that um, I tend to kind of find that that for me, if you just look at my companies, they tend to be kind of someone who's experienced plus someone who's less experienced um, or a first time person. And that thread is true in almost everything I've done. I'm, I'm not sure that's a formula I'm following. It just happens to be the way I think it's just like what I'm, you know, what I end up kind of spending my time on. Some of my partners they are they prefer people who are extremely new you know just brand new to entrepreneurship it's their first company i have some other partners who will only work with people who've been they've they themselves have worked with before so it's like this idea of like i'm going to work with people over and over again so we're kind of a broad range i'm like a bit of a hybrid um others are a little bit more one direction versus another but yeah I do think that in general, if you're an entrepreneur trying to make your way, especially if you're a new entrepreneur, it, you really do need to find, I think it's always helpful if you can co-found or find someone who's been successful before, just because their connections, you know, they, they just know a lot of people because that experience took them to a lot of different VC firms as they were raising money. Sometimes they heard yes, sometimes they heard no, but they met a lot of VCs. They may have met a lot of big companies, they have a lot of people that they worked with in those companies. I just think the network is so strong for people that have been experienced. And so if I was a first time entrepreneur, I think the best thing to do is find someone who you trust, who you know is going to be a good partner, but, and you don't mind sharing some of your idea with, and obviously some of the economics, um, but you, but with someone who has a lot of some experience, you know, and is willing and is is a good mentor would be a good partner a good coach i think that helps a lot it makes things a lot faster actually because trying to do everything yourself from scratch is just hard relationships time take time to build a lot of people that i work with i've known for 15 years so in 3 minutes we have a level of comfort it took you know years to develop you know and for a first time entrepreneur, it just takes time to build those things. And so I just think it goes faster if you can partner up with people that have been experienced. Like you and I were, you know, got to know each other through a project. You know, and I would say quite a lot of the people involved in that know at least one other person for a long period of time. You know, so it's it's not that everybody knows everybody, but it's that, you know, one person knows one person for a very long time and 
And then that person knows someone else for a very long time. And then they get into, you know, so there's this trust factor that has created a very strong bond between everybody. Um, you know, cause usually a friend of a friend is a friend kind of concept. So yeah, I, I think that's a mistake I've seen a lot of young entrepreneurs make is that they just want to do it themselves. And I don't think anything ever gets done by yourself. I don't know. I don't know of any good company that, or any great idea that germinated all by one person and they dominated the idea all the way through. It just takes a village to build these things. Yeah. It's also the, if you have a transactional nature of it, building and relationship, I, I don't think it gets you too far either because people really yeah. re will remember and it's, uh, we had a, a, with that project, we had a, you know, meeting just a few days ago and it was such a fun to just, you know, have and talk with people. And, and it's because at least from my side, I, I felt that, you know, because people knew each other, some of them for a long yeah. time. And it was like a good chemistry between people. And, and it was just basically a pleasure to be there and, and enjoy. And yeah. th that's a good part of, of sort of building relationship and, and having, having great people around you and, and getting, getting to know more of the awesome people. But it, it certainly takes time. Yeah, I agree. You've been building companies in different parts of the world as well, US, Germany, Singapore, and, and obviously in the US as well. So are there any differences? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think there's definitely difference. I mean, even in the US, you know, there's a big difference. There used to be a big difference between San Francisco and Boston. There still kind of is in more in flavor. You know, Boston's probably more of a biotech heavy environment where San Francisco still, I think tech still kind of dominates. And that, that changes the nature of the entrepreneurs. It changes, you know, somewhat the nature of the investors. Um, New York is a very different kind of environment. And so, you know, and then when you, we've started some company, we started a company in Iceland, which was before my time. I kind of caught the tail end of it. Very interesting company as well that sequenced the Icelandic, all the genomes of all the people in Iceland to create, you know, a data set that would help the company create new medicines and be a benefit to the people of Iceland. Um, We've started some companies in Ireland. We used to have an office there in Dublin, and that that was a very different environment too. Um, Germany, I, I was CEO of a company where most recently, but uh, I stepped down about a year ago. Yeah, about a year ago, and um, we had about sixty people in the U.S. and about thirty people in Dresden, Germany. And um, I'm starting up something new that'll probably have a small contingent of people initially in either Berlin or Dresden, also. Um, and then I've started a company years ago in Hong Kong. It was kind of fun. That was kind of interesting. And then more recently, a company I'm starting will have a, 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 a unit in Singapore as well. And I think, you know, what you find is that I think that there's just really, really different views people have about risk and about greed, I guess. And, and, um, and, and, yeah. And I think that those, those tend to affect people's views, you know, like when I had this company in Dresden, you know, I was a CEO, we started with them. Actually, interestingly, we had more employees initially in Dresden because we, they had come from the Max Planck Institute in Dresden. We had recruited about eight young scientists, maybe six or eight young scientists. So very quickly we were kind of bigger in Dresden than when we were in Boston. Eventually Boston grew to be bigger, but 
So I went over and, you know, we were also separate. This was pre-pandemic, but we were using Zoom constantly and we were videoing all the time and things because of the distance. So I went to Dresden first time I visited and put the whole team together. And and what we did was, you know, I, I basically asked the team to write on the board all the prejudices that they had about Americans, like all the stereotypes, just all the, you know, the worst ideas you've got, all the stereotypes, write them on the board. And, you know, they were obviously not willing to do that. So I was like, well, I'll go first. I'll, I'll write all the ones about Germans, you know, that I know, I, I can think of. And I have actually cousins, you know, my, my uncle grew lived in Berlin, still lives in Berlin. So I have cousins that were grew up, were born in Germany, grew up there. So I've been there many, many times. And, you know, I threw up the usual ones. Ah, you know, stubborn, you know, like don't change your minds, like, you know, slow, cautious. You know, I put all these up. And then they start going, you know, oh, you Americans, you know, you're like, you know, kind of quit, you know, flighty, you know, change your minds all the time, arrogant, you know, and, you know, they go through the list. And what we did was we went and we discussed each one. And what we realized it, it, to really get to the part, because it's not that those comments are wrong. They're just oversimplifications of deeper kind of cultural behaviors, right? And what you find is like, as an example, in German culture, you know, one of the classical kind of ways in which people are taught when they go into the business world of like how to succeed is this phrase that a friend of mine told me, another friend told me is that, you know, that the, you, you're told you should do what you say, say what you do and don't be late. Right. And then, you know, if you just do those three things, you'll be fine in business, you know, you'll do fine in life. But when you think about that, you know, there, that is the basis of a lot of that what I considered to be like what I would get the conservatism of my team members in Germany was that they were just very cautious about saying something that they didn't mean and they hadn't thought through in detail and then having to change their minds. Changing your mind is very, very like, whereas in America, like we would, we would interview, we would say, oh, that candidate is fantastic. You know, let's interview three of them, but that's the one we like. And then we would interview three of them and we'd say, well, Actually, I really, you know, ah, that guy, you know, we really like Sally. You know, she was the, the one that really stood out. And it was, it was viewed as so flaky, you know, because I think in, because for them, you know, when, if you say, you shouldn't say up front what you like, let's just go through the process. Whereas for us, I think we're constantly communicating. So there's a tremendous amount of communication in American culture. And some of it is, you know, by definition, 80% of it is going to change over time. So we're, and so what we did, in, in creating this binational company was, or multi, and then we ended up actually also acquiring a little business in Canada and some other things. Um, what we've done is we've made it very clear that there are the things about the company and actually the CEO of the company now lives in Switzerland. So it's a really, really multinational company. And um, what we agreed, what we agreed to was that there were things, there were items, what we will call our values and our goals that were not, ever going to change. So those were in, in transient, you know, they, th those were solid. And yet how we achieve them was open to constant innovation and debate. And I think that really settled everybody down because it said, okay, within you tell me that I have to go do X. That's great. Now you're going to let me be free to do whatever I want to get to X. Um, and, and I think that helped everybody get on the same page and, so we took a lot of time being very careful about some of the things that we'd say. Um, and then we were very open that the other, some of the other goals we had were by definition not going to work. They were going to change. We were going to fail. We were going to, 
pivot, we were going to do X, Y, Z because the science is unknown. I mean, you know, you're really on the edge of knowledge in some of these companies. I think that that was like one interesting learning. I think that in Asia, like in Hong Kong, I remember, you know, they, they, the value can, can of I pause, pause for a bit before sure, you go sure. to Asia. Sure. I was just thinking that it sounded like the decision making process was different, you know, with Americans, it was more like you were talking, you know, loudly open, you know, what you were thinking. For the Germans, it was like a silent, you know, and 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 and, and then the then sort of some kind of a conclusion or you, you had decided your mind, then you basically start to talk. And then you well, you do, and then and when you say you're gonna do something, you don't stop till you accomplish it. Which no, also makes yeah. you a little bit more conservative because you mm. It's really bad if you can't get something done. Whereas I think in America, you know, quitting is not good, but I think pivoting is okay in some sense. You know, we adjust no, as no, we go no. along. Quickly and adjusting and adapting. Quickly adjusting, and, yeah. And so no. they're very different, but they're both good, by the way, you know, because no. some goals and some tasks, you know, you can't pivot. You just got to hang in there and keep pounding no. away the thing until That's you get it done. Sense. I think, you know, also in Germany, you know, like in America, I know a number of entrepreneurs who've been unsuccessful a couple of times and then everybody reminds them, remembers them for their third or fourth attempt. And, you know, in Germany, you're personally liable, actually, if your company doesn't do well, if you're the CEO. I think the cultural risk is much, much higher. A failure is much, much higher. That's one thing about America that American entrepreneurship, and I think the Israelis are similar in that sense. Fail As far as I've met, you know, I haven't worked in Israel, but... Um, the entrepreneurs I met, failure is not viewed as a bad word. It's just viewed as a piece of data. You know, like you tried it, it didn't work. Okay. And then you tried something else and you tried to, until you figured it out. If you're always getting better and smarter and faster, we call it innovation, you know, whereas other cultures call it failure. And I think that is the biggest cultural barrier to entrepreneurship in what I've seen in Europe, I think, is that, you know, is is that that pressure i think in asia it's different i think that they're they i think like in china they're very entrepreneurial constantly starting new companies etc however i think that their time scales are really short and what i noticed is that equity was not something of great interest to people because they um, had never like in private companies they didn't really know how it worked they didn't really understand now this is 2008 you know it was a long time ago but um when we started that company, but, um, but they were very, very short, the investors in particular, but in general, people had a, there was a very fast pacedness to things. And so no. it wasn't going to work fast. It wasn't going to work. Ironically, that group that we created, that, that became the foundation of us, of a company and a subsidiary of a U.S. business, we, there was a drug that just had really interesting data that came out of that group's work. So I think there are exceptions. It's not a rule, but I just noticed when I was there that most of the people we were interviewing were kind of in a rush to figure out, like, how's this company going to do? How fast is the value going to go up? Um, I think, you know, in Singapore, people are very interested in good jobs, you know, and I think salaries mean a lot to people, you know, so, and, and so I just, I think d digging deep when you, if you're going to start a company in a new environment, if you're going to invest in a company in a new environment, I think really understand what makes the culture tick. Like for some people, having a stable job isn't just about them. It's about the pressure of their wife and their mother and their father and everybody else putting on them and all their friends and everything. 
So kind of dismissing that and saying, oh, just come to this startup no one's ever heard of before is, you know, you're kind of missing what they're trying to tell you, you know, with their, you know, I think when they're, you know, acting, you know, maybe a little more careful and conservative, like it's not because they're, they don't understand what you're saying. It's just their cultural rules that, that they've been, you know, that, that, that run that, you know, that run that environment, that run that society. And I think understanding them and really being curious about them. So I, I found it quite interesting, you know, of like digging in and hierarchy is also another thing, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of cultures are pretty hierarchical, um, America a little less so, but, and then understanding how, like you would hear grumbling sometimes, right. In certain, certain companies I've started in certain places, you know, people grumble a lot. And I always took that really seriously until people said to me, look, because they have to do what the boss says, it's not like America where you just get to like combat, you know, like, like challenge management all the time. The only way they get to express themselves is through the grumbling. So the grumbling is a necessary part of the feedback process because they can't say it directly. Once the boss says we're going left, you have to go left. But that grumbling is the only thing that allows them to get some of their ideas out and some of the, you know, some of their sense of self and independence for the staff. So you actually want to encourage it's don't don't view it. You know, it's an important piece of the pressure valve, whereas, you know, you would be arguing with your boss in the hallway. They're not allowed to do that. And so and I think, again, that's true. The very different cultures, you know, different cultures have very different sense. I mean, if you go to Japan very, very different hierarchical, how the layers within a company interact with each other is very different than say in, in Israel or in America or uh, Germany or, you know, so it's, I think just being super sensitive about that stuff, if you're going to go into new territory is really important. I think we generally aren't that sensitive. <laughs> we just go in and like, get, and complain that it's not going the way we want it to go. Um, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um rather recent book, uh, Reed Hastings, about Netflix and Netflix culture and how they were actually becoming international. And, and they're describing in the book the process of, you know, Americans going to different places yeah. and having the same same experiences and what is really in the nature of the of the company. Yeah. And and what are the things we achieve and, and different ways of, of, of doing it. And there's some examples of, you know, difference between Singapore and Americans. Yeah, and one of the things I remember from the book is that for Americans, you have to start with something positive, sort of wrap it up nicely, you know, sort of a cushion the thing, and then you can actually say the real thing. What do you want to say? And, and there was there were some other examples. So if you haven't read it, it's, it's an excellent book. Uh, did did you notice that when you were working with the with the, with the Germans and, and the German company and and the, the U.S. office that? they started to sort of become like a hybrid in a way that they started to have, you know, learn from each other and it, it became like the culture of its own. Well, we, we, um, we pushed for that. I mean, we, we viewed it, you know, I, there's a kind of a general rule I learned early on that, you know, I saw other people do it and is, you know, take your bug and turn it into a feature. If you can't take your limitations and you see this in sports all the time, you know, like for example, there's a great documentary actually on a number of, of like the best athletes in the various sports. And when you interview them, what you realize when they grew up is that they actually were the ones with the deficiencies. So Wayne Gretzky, who's a very famous American hockey player, um, Canadian, actually he's a Canadian who played um, in both the U.S. and Canadian hockey leagues, very famous. 
And Wayne Gretzky um, talked about how he was actually pretty small and pretty slow. He's not a very fast skater. It's ironic because he seems so fast on the ice. Um, but, but that in his own mind, one of the reasons he had to figure out how to predict the game was because he was slower than the kids around him. And one of the, re- and the reason he invented kind of essentially became very proficient at skating behind the net was because he would get beat up if he did, you know, he couldn't take the hits, you know, consistently over a career if he stayed in the middle. So one of his coaches taught him like, why don't you just kind of spend your time in that, you know, that way you're going to get hit a lot less. Um, and, you know, this guy, Jerry Rice, who for American football fans is viewed as one of the best, if not the best receiver of all time. And he was unbelievable at like his running routes. And you always thought he was fast. It turns out he was actually quite slow. But what, so what he had to do is he had to work on perfect timing. So his timing was unbelievable. And he kind of invented this whole process of being like perfect precision timing on the passes. Um, and it's because he was slow, because he didn't have a natural athleticism that some of the people around him did. So I think that part of the secret to life is to appreciate your limitations and make the best of them. And so what we did with, with this company, Dewpoint, that I was the CEO of was was to realize like it's a it's a it's a limitation to have half the team in Germany, half the team in the U.S. So how do we turn it into a positive? Um, I think it it ended up weirdly becoming a positive. So yeah, so we definitely spent a lot of time you know thinking about the benefits of the culture. I think the real positive came almost in a more you know tactical way because once the pandemic hit, we had already been working by Zoom for a year, so it was it was like seamless. You know, I was running a company at the time. And we also had the advantage that we had two different jurisdictions that were were um, going through kind of COVID rules at slightly different times. So our labs could always, we, we just worked out that we always had a lab that was always up and running because between the two places we could transfer knowledge. Now that was a result of a decision we made early on was that we would not put certain functions in certain geographies, but that our chemistry group would be spread out in both geographies, our biology group would be in both geographies. Our, you know, our, our informatics group was actually in the, you know, was being built primarily in the U S and Canada, but you know, we would also involve people in Germany. And so, because I didn't want there to be a dividing line that said, Oh, the biology is done in Boston and the chemistry is done in Dresden because then that would make the groups split apart. So we want to make sure that each, scientific discipline of the company or sub sub discipline of the company had people in both countries so they did force the cross-culturalism so and then the benefit that that created was we essentially had a redundancy so when the pandemic hit i didn't i don't think we predicted a pandemic but when the pandemic hit we had people that did biology in both jurisdictions we had people that did bio, you know chemistry in both places so it was just easy to kind of we had all of our equipment had been, you know, we essentially had twice as much, you know, we had equip- almost not quite the same level or amount, but we had equipment that could be purposed for any, for these functions in both geographies. So they made it super easy during the pandemic um, to just keep rolling, which I think people were a little surprised by. So it turned out like a really great thing, but it was kind of by accident, you know. Um, but I think we did early on consciously want to build a two culture, a two country culture. Um, so we force people to always be interacting with each other. I'll tell you one of the things that was really hard is time zones. Um, 
because oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, time zones are surprising. I mean, it seems like such a simple thing, you know, but but we we especially during the time of the pandemic when you know kids were home a lot more, et cetera, we had a lot of issues with you know what was kind of twelve o'clock here it was now six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock there, you know, by the afternoon. So people here are wanting to get going, and there, you know, they have to feed their kids and stuff. So we started to create like blackout periods. Um, you know, in in both geographies, where people were expected to kind of not be around, actually, and and you know, you can you know flop back online, you know, once the kids are down or whatever. Especially during that period where all families were living together in the house, it became really really difficult. Um, and we we tried to institute you know policies where the people with the kids actually were the ones that made it didn't matter what your hierarchy was if you had children or family or whatever you're the one that decided when the meeting would be um so that you know we kind of it, you know never really got to that level but i think just making sure that people with kids understood that they were on our minds and that we were accommodating whatever they wanted you know they never took it you know it never got to be overly hard you know um structured but i think it would just gave them a sense People with, you know, they tend to be the younger people and the staff, et cetera, gave them a sense that people were, were completely sensitive to what they were going through. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, I think that period of time was interesting because, you know, I think it forced people, if you had a good company culture, you actually got to learn about each other a lot more because you ended up in each other's business a lot more, you know. So if you, you know, had little kids, it was now like totally cool to tell people I've got little kids, you know, whereas before you don't really tell people like in, the, you know, work is work and home is home. But here it's like, yeah, listen, I, you know, I got a dentist appointment. I got to take my little kid to or whatever. And people were cool about it, you know, and I think they just became more accommodating of the real life of a person. See, I don't know. I thought I just loved that part myself. Um, I didn't find it to be an inconvenience. Um, you know, I don't think we're going back. I think we're just now already in, in some new way of doing it, and and you know people are starting. Some of obviously love it, and but, but you know it's all, always circumstantial that you know some, some have better workplace at home, and uh, other others need to probably find the quiet and peace elsewhere. Yeah, or, or do it at night. The, yeah, yeah. And we'll see. I mean, we'll see what happens. I mean, we're still kind of in a thick of it, but. Um... From a travel restriction, et cetera. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I think people are more comfortable being willing to conduct business, you know, without having ever met someone before, and that that makes it a little easier. I think in the end, we're still social creatures, and we'll still want to meet each other. So I don't know that that business travel will ever completely go away, um, and I don't know that uh, the structured environment of the workday will completely disappear because I think people still like kind of being together during the day and having some separation. Um, I mean, there's a downside to it too, which is a lot of people are burning out, you know, working too many hours, burning out. And so that's not good either. Um, and I think, you know, so we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Uh, one of the things we've been facing in one of the companies is that we have a uh, stuff happening in New Zealand. And everything between Europe and and then uh, the west coast of US, and finding the you know, all hands where yeah. most of the people are at the same time is becoming really hard, and yeah. it's almost impossible. And I don't and think it's that, possible, right? Well, it's 
within the you know some tolerance limits you can barely do it but you know yeah. it's, it's it's really narrow the window you can do something together uh, and this is a challenge in a way that you have to find ways that how you can have the corporate culture how you how you make sure that everyone is included everybody can contribute and, and there's the social aspect of, of doing stuff but also that you're not missing out when, when you're sleeping and the other guys are talking you know somewhere somewhere else yeah and and I think that pushes uh, a lot of stuff to the asynchronous communication, doing things in, in a different way and sort of being innovative. And, and at the end of the day, the time zones are not going away if the pandemic is going away. Yeah. And, and, and that stays anyway. So um, that's something we've been now facing more because obviously you cannot travel and it's, it's hard to do and we just have to yeah. accommodate uh, what is... Do you have any any experiences, anything you want to say about um, when you're doing stuff remotely that uh, you need to over-communicate almost, like that you have to do something, emphasize something more in order to, to keep the level of uh, communication because you can well, think people. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, maybe you could answer a question for me, which is like, I don't know if you've, you know, been out outside of Finland for a long period of time for a phase in your life or and then all of a sudden you run into someone who's Finnish, right? In a four, you know, you know, that feeling of familiarity, right? And, you know, you know, it, it's very strong, actually. I mean, it happened, it, certainly I grew up, you know, in a lot of different countries and then um, ended up in the U.S. And when I meet people that are Iranian, you know, my, my background, where I was born, um, there's just a familiarity, you know, there's a very strong um, connection, you know, it's partly language, it's maybe more expression, it's, you know, it's cultural, it's food, it's a lot of things. And I think that, you know, I think that the communication thing, and this is true in a company regardless of whether you're in two time zones or one, which is, I remember when one of the companies that started, you know, this um, I was talking to one of the employees uh, we were sitting next to. Her. I said, how's it going? She said, well, it's interesting. You know, this is the company was growing. And she said, this, it's starting to become a situation where things are happening that I don't, people are telling me about things they've done versus me knowing that they were going to do them because we're too big now. And I, it used to be one office. And so I, I, anything that was happening, I was on my headphones, but I could hear, but now and I said, well, how are, you, how are you feeling about that? She said, well, I feel at first a little scared because it's like you're feeling like you're out of the loop. But in the end, I realized it comes down to trust. You know, I just have to trust that people are doing the right thing. So I, Petri, I think that um, all those tools like Slack and all that crap, I think that it fundamentally what it comes down to is do you have a corporate culture that's unique enough and that's strong enough so that people and you recruit for people that have a sense of trust about the way they're going to behave you know trust is a general statement but what it really implies is that i can predict what you're trying to do like i can so i worked in a bank for a period of time and you could 100 percent trust that everyone was going to be untrustworthy guaranteed like they were going to look out for themselves it was all about how much money they made for themselves don't they were not going to protect you and and it was very comforting in some sense because 
those were the rules and the rules were codified and there was no, they were implicit. I wouldn't say they were explicit. They were implicit, but it, you saw it in like 99, 95% of people that worked around you, even when they weren't, they, you know, no one said it out loud, but you could just tell that's the way they were going to behave. And, you know, you know, if you, if you assumed otherwise, you know, you'd get burned. Right. And that was true. And that culture was interesting because when you, when we met people from other places of that, from that same company, they, it felt comfortable, familiar, because they were the same way, <laughs> you know, so there was no, and I think that's the trick. It's like meeting family members. Like when you meet family at a wedding that you haven't met, seen in a long time, or like some uncle's niece or, some, you know, daughter that you'd never met before, there's a comfort, a familiarity. That's because the social imprint of your family, the stories that have been told, the, 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 the importances, the, the, the traits that the family makes important, he holds as important are powerful. And I think for a company, defining its culture, recruiting people to that culture, promoting them along the lines of that culture and being very explicit about it, I think that makes it easier because then when you find out that the New Zealanders have done something, you know, and made a decision X, Y, Z, you know, if it's consistent with what you assume they were going to do, then it's, you're like, okay, great. And when you meet them, when you finally make the trip over there, it feels like you're meeting people that you understand very well. And there's a comfort factor. I think if you don't put that kind of effort into it, it's very, very hard. I don't think a asynchronous communication tool is going to make up for that. Um, if people aren't, I, to me, it's all about culture. It's all about company culture. And it's about defining the unique nature of your culture and imprinting it on like, you know, like putting it, you know, burning it into the back of people's retinas with like, you know, constant reminders, you know, really getting it burnt in there. Now that culture can be very different. It could be a very flat egalitarian culture. It can be a very, what's in it for me kind of culture. I mean, you know, there's no good or bad. There's, you know, every company has its culture. It works or it doesn't. Um, Right. You know, some of us like to work in one style versus another, you know, there's no, I don't think there's like a, I'm not elitist about culture, but, um, but you, you, but I do think that that's probably to me what I found. And so in this company in Germany and the U S what was, what was a common thread for everybody was incredible scientific curiosity. So the one thing that like, you know, there was obviously honesty and transparency. There was the usual kind of things that we wanted. Um, but, but, and that's true in a number of good companies, but what really stood out here was like people were really, really curious about each other's work and very, very good at, at criticizing and questioning without challenge, without making people feel bad. And that you could see it all the time. People just have really good conversations. It's a very conversational company. So when you go there, it's like you can sit in a corner and just talk to someone at length about stuff. And I think that made it very comfortable. So when they got on the Zoom or when they, you know, they felt like friends. And and so I think that's what has kept the bond of that company with a time zone challenge. It's a little harder with New Zealand, the, you know, West Coast and Europe. I think it's basically impossible, but, but I don't know how you create that shared culture, but that's probably what I would, that's my view of it. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the, the question I was about to ask that, uh... Can you actually build, create a culture, or are you actually recruiting the culture? Well, well, well. I think you. So what I've done, I don't know if it works or not, but it, you know, I don't know, it's, it's a system I've used. Is that once you get to about 
eight, 10 people, maybe by about, by certainly by the time you get to 20, you are going to have a culture. Now, the question is, do you want to be the hammer? Do you want to be the nail? Um, do you want to let the culture just kind of emerge from the 20 people you hired and how they start to interact with each other to be effective and successful? Or do you want to take those 20 people and say, or 15 or 10 or whatever, and say, okay, what are the things that we all, the group of us find near and dear and important? And let's put those up on a wall or, you know, wherever on a, on a screen and let's, let's narrow it down because there'll be a hundred things that everybody loves like motherhood and apple pie. Right. But, but can you narrow that down to a set of things that define us like that are the most important for this group of 20 people versus any generic group of 20 people in say tech or biotech or whatever. And, um, and then start to build the case around the uniqueness of that particular configuration of either words and ideas and goals and really refine it down and make it unique. Right. And I think to me, that's the trick because then you can start to build a recruiting process that like I had one company where from the very beginning, everybody said they want to work in groups. Like the idea was that we would create small units that would tackle problems and versus kind of hierarchical assemblies, a little bit more pods, you know, that you've seen in different places like Google or um, in biotech, it wasn't that common to operate that way. So it was kind of fun to try it. And what we decided was that the recruiting process was therefore never going to be one-on-one -on -one at that time. I, this was when I was CEO. I don't know what happens now, but um, so every time we would recruit somebody, it was always two or three of us and, and the recruit always in a quasi public space you know, kind of a coffee shop or a cafe or the cafeteria or whatever. Um, and always in a, in a conversational way. And that helped solidify the kind of way in which we were going to work in, in the company and see how this person would interact in that environment. It wasn't a three people asking one person a bunch of questions. It was three people having a conversation and seeing how the fourth interacted in that conversation. And, um, and we have to be careful not to over-index for extroverts and under-index for introverts. And we have to be careful with like, Some people don't necessarily have an, want to express an idea right then, but they want to come back to it. So over time, we figured out how to do the interviewing process in such a way that we took out the artifacts, the mistakes that would come from a particular way of doing things, and were able to select for the right personalities, um, but that we were able to imprint on people exactly what you know we were trying to describe as a culture and, and people always remembered that and i think in this other company i was telling you about the one in the u.s and germany viewpoint people i've met people who have worked there not worked there interviewed etc they all remember that everybody has to which is not uncommon in biotech people have to give like a talk like a talk about the science that they've done in the past um it's kind of called the job talk or whatever but usually it's a scientific presentation um in these science organizations and um, what what is what people always talk about is the sheer number of people that would dial in from all over the U.S. and Germany to anyone's talk, and the degree of questions and curiosity for the talk. It was like that was the thing that like was the centerpiece of the interview process was was just the way in which everybody would get motivated for anyone's talk. And it was both an advertisement for the company as well as a 
as an interview of the person to see that like, could they handle that kind of curiosity. But that's what has been the nature of this company is just broad-based curiosity, right, about stuff. So I think you can do it. I think the interview process is the first place, but but it won't. So you have to set your culture. You have to set your promotions, you know, the way in which you give feedback to people, whether it's every three months or once a year or whatever, the way in which you promote people or give them bonuses or, or, or recognize them to the rest of the organization for their accomplishments, you know, that all has to be consistent with your culture. They have to be doing things that, you know, you have to recognize the things they do that reinforce the culture that you want to see. So I do think it just setting the culture and putting words on a board doesn't work. You have to then turn that into, I think it actually starts with your promotion and bonus and reward system and review system. And then it also has to be embedded in your recruiting system. But if you just do recruiting and you don't do the others, then people kind of drift over time. So you, it, it's just like this constant process, you know. I think it's cool, you know. But yeah, you have to set a culture, try to make it unique. But if you think about Finnish culture, I mean, Persian culture, whatever, I mean, a big part of it is also the stories. I think stories and and so I don't know that like Slack to me is like the strongest way to share something because it's like disconnected, like sure. But I think stories you know, recognition, like, you know, I don't know. I think, I think those are more interesting. You know, one of the first inventions man, mankind made was stories, right? You know, I mean, on the cave draw, you know, drawings on the cave walls and stuff. I mean, they told stories. I mean, stories are very old, you know, Gilgamesh, I think is the first story, but I may be wrong on that. But um, certainly I think for Western civilization, you know, Gil, story of Gilgamesh um, and Enkidu is one of the first ones. Um but these are very, very old things, you know. They, I think, they predated agriculture, maybe, but and and they're really important for passing down information and traits and knowledge that you want to pass down, right? So, I don't know. I'm probably more of a story guy than I am a internet solution to the pro, you know, than a tech solution, like a Python based solution set, you know, where so it's like this either an app brings or me an slide. idea. Uh, you know, there's no, in, in some company, there may not be a, like a corporate culture, you know, manual or book. There's just a storybook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me tell a story. Once upon a time, there was, a, you know, founder, blah, blah. And, you know, then you go on. and. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had actually one of my companies did that. Um, so this company, Janana, which was when I was involved in and I uh, was, was the CEO for a short, for about a year and change um, prior to starting Dewpoint. Um we we came up with this idea. It's called the Book of Janana, and um, and uh, you know each people were encouraged. You know, I wrote the first when I wrote the kind of guiding document for the company and the guiding you know premise like white paper for the company. We made that book one chapter one of the book, and um, I don't know if they've continued it, but I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Is like to have a scrapbook or something. I mean, anything that that kind of describes the stories of. And you, and think about it, that's your family. I mean, around you know, you're talking about old Uncle Henrik that, you know, showed up you know here or there, you know, and you know, I don't know, like, you know, had to sleep for two nights in the snow because he forgot his keys to his car. You know, whatever it is, like it's the stories that, and it's that set of stories. Each of them has a feature of your family culture that your family find. I mean, it's a story that people like to tell each other because it highlights something that people 
want to highlight and that becomes you know kind of imprinted on the rest of your family and that's basically coming back to the relationships yeah you no know, it's they are embedded with stories because you know what is a relationship without a story so because we've been now talking so much stories you were in some conference i bet it was boring or not but you met someone who was um familiar from your past uh how did you met yeah, Rodney no, Mullen? Can, can, yeah. you, can you can you tell the story and that's how you and I got to know each other was through Rodney. Um, what was, I mean, it was strange, you know, I was at this neuroscience conference, um, in Massachusetts. So, you know, it was easy for me to go to it. And, and there was this gentleman who, you know, was kind of didn't, you know, had a slightly different kind of carry and bearing a little bit, you know, and was sitting, was kind of sitting by himself in the hallway, you know, kind of uh, peripheral, like not, you know, some people would go to conference and they sit like in the front table, you know, this is not Rodney. And, um, and so he, there's this gentleman and, and I remember thinking, man, I, that person looks familiar to me. I don't know why, but they, they look, they don't, there's, there's a reason I know that person, but I don't know why I know that person. I could so just like really thinking, you know, just maybe it's from TV or. <laughs> yeah, or something. And, and then, and, you know, I'd, I'd watched a number of documentaries and also, you know, he looks a little different than when we were growing up, but. You know, he was quite a big figure in my life as as a ter. I mean, a terrible skater. It's going to be embarrassing actually if I ever we end up all ever end up skating together, because um, I'm a terrible, terrible skater. But but I loved it a lot. You know, and I and I remember you know no. But he, you know, he's a little older now, so his he, his look has changed. Um, but I was like, yeah, there's something familiar about that. And then I was looking through the conference program, and I saw. I'm like that that name like that's a skater what's he do you know is that the same person and then i googled him and yes and i realized that's him you know so i went up to him and i said you know are you um i don't want to you know i don't want to be rude but are you Rodney Mullen? and he goes yeah oh, cool man like it's like great to see you and i think i was like the only person that kind of recognized him and and then we just started chatting about you know what you know just the conference and stuff and and you know part of it also is that skate, you know, I grew up quite a few hours of my day each day as a child until I was about 14 or 15, I was skating. So there's, there's quite a lot of skate culture that you also absorb during, you know, the eight years or whatever I was kind of skating around. And, um, and so that all, you know, there's some mannerisms and some behavior that become familiar to each other. And, and it, again, for him, it's a comfort, right? Because here he is in this environment that, you know, isn't one he's completely comfortable with. And I, and I, you know, the same, it would be true for me. Like if I went to an environment that was all pro skaters, I wouldn't feel so great about myself, but being around someone like him who has a great curiosity for mathematics and for other things, you know, make you feel comfortable, you know, like, okay, I'm not, the, I'm not completely the only, I'm not like completely the oddball here. And I think that, yeah, it's, um, but like I said, I've always had this curiosity for people that, just yeah, I, I've just been very curious about people. So if I meet someone and they look like they have an interesting story to tell me, I just go over there um, and just try to talk to them and chat, chat about stuff, and just be super curious about stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's how we met, uh, and then and then we became friends. I mean, you know, quite you know that that was like four years ago, I think, and quite a lot of good has come from it. You know, different interactions of of you know our curiosities and interests. Um, yeah, it's been fun. You know, yeah. 
and then you share the, um, some stuff as also with the MIT. I think we also you were help you were helping to launch the MIT sandbox sandbox innovation fund as well. And I did. Yeah, my partner Alan Spoon and I started you know essentially started that, architected it for um, the, the at the time the Chancellor for Student Affairs. Um, Chancellor Grimson, I believe, um, he had come to us and we'd had breakfast one day. And I, you know, I'm an, uh, uh, my partner, Alan, was a very proud alum of MIT. I, I went there in grad school. So, the, you know, the undergrads tend to think of the grad school ones as like, you know, like second, you know, we're not quite undergrads. We're like, you know, we're MIT associated versus MIT, MIT. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I spent a lot of years there. And, and um, so we I got to breakfast with the with the chancellor, and he had described this problem they were having, which is that, um, to what you know, in general, they're always trying to make the campus more of a engaging um, and fruitful place for the students, and especially the undergraduates. And the average age at which people have started their first company has been going down. So MIT has always had a lot of entrepreneurs. But when they do these surveys, like what was the age at which you started your first company? For a long time, it was in their 40s. Typically, what would happen is people would go and work at like GE or Westinghouse or IBM or whatever. And then at some point, they were like, ah, I can make a better server or I can make a better engine or pump. And then they would leave to go start their own company. But what was happening was that the average age was dropping dramatically to the point where now like entering kids that were coming in from high school wanted to start companies. And so what we created for MIT, but it was really interesting, you know, like, so I remember, you know, when I was a student there, if you wanted to study, if you, if you wanted to study mathematics, but you were also a very good swimmer, and I, I played water polo, so I played with a lot of the water polo kids. Um, I was in the pool a lot with the swimmers. And so, you know, these are kids that, you know, go off and, you know, study whatever subject they wanted, but because they had a passion for a particular athletic activity, the student, the, the student body, the, the faculty, everybody appreciated that they were putting in extra effort to go swim, let's say in the division three championships or whatever, you know, whatever level, if they had a swim meet or they had a competition or whatever, and that they were representing MIT and they would be proud of that. So they made, they would shift midterms for them. You know, there were accommodations that were made to accommodate the fact that this person was living essentially a double life that was generally good for the campus. On the other hand, if you have a startup, you don't have that benefit, right? Because you have to do everything at night. You know, if, if you launch a website for XYZ, let's say to connect people on campus who may want to chat with someone about something, all of a sudden that website takes off. All of a sudden, you know, you have like 20,000 new members and you're thinking, if you've got midterms next week, you have midterms next week. They're not, no, you can't, you have to hide it. You have to hide it, you know, from everybody. And there was no way to be proud of it, although technically you should be very proud of this and the campus should be very proud of you. So we created the sandbox program where a number of investors put in money and we actually created something kind of interesting, which I'll talk to you about on that. But basic idea was investors would put in money and create a fund on campus and that fund would then be essentially uh, almost like a drawdown account for students who wanted to start their companies now they would have to propose a business and, they, and there's a whole selection process, et cetera. So it would make it somewhat VC-like, but in the end, the selection isn't about finding, like, you know, there's business plan competitions and things. But if you think about a business plan competition, it's to get 
a thousand kids to submit something so like two or three win some money. That's that's a prize. That's not this is an education system. So if Petri, you have an idea and you're a young student, the most important thing we can do is give you a little bit of money to figure out do you like trying an idea or are you just better off not being an entrepreneur? Like the single best piece of advice you can get as a young person is do you like that process of getting negative feedback and or do you prefer not to do you not like that process? And because so many people think they should be entrepreneurs and and then a lot of people don't really think they're suited for it or whatever. And then they try and they love it. And so it's really like math. Like, you know, when you go to a university, you should try math and, you know, half the kids are going to like it and half the kids should drop out and say, you know, I don't really like math. I'm going to go back to chemistry or physics or, and you know, uh, English or whatnot, literature. And so I think we'd set it up so that the amounts of dollars were small. The volume of students was high. So they became viewed more as a, as a process for you to self-discovery versus, ooh, like I'm going to win and, you know, all that. And so that ended up being very, very successful at this point, I think. Within a year or two, I think we had pretty, it was offered to every single freshman that came on our campus when they would get the letter that they'd been accepted to MIT. They would say, and by the way, we have money set aside for you in case you have a company you want to try. Wow. Um, so it became embedded within the architecture of the university. And, and, but when we launched it, when we first, I went around campus, I had to convince all these professors with my partner, Alan, and, and the dean of engineering at the time, Ian Waits, who was the big internal champion for it. We would meet professors all over and people would say to us, well, it's going to distract the kids. The kids aren't really interested in this. Um, entrepreneur, you know, it's, it was just a lot of negative energy. Which, you know, is fine. You know, it's a new idea. But once we tried it, everybody kind of got on board and said, wow, this is like the fabric. Now, the thing we invented, which I thought was kind of cool, is that when I would go on campus and give talks, I always had this issue, you know, some after the talk, people come up to you and tell you like some idea they're working on. And if they're a student, I was always feeling like if the idea was terrible, I, I actually felt fine because I would just tell them, like, I think, you know, for X, Y, Z reason, this is a terrible idea. But if the idea is good, you're always a little bit worried because what if you tell this kid, yeah, that's a great idea. And then they drop out of school, you know, and now, you know, now like, you know, say 18 year old, 19 year old, like they drop out of school. They don't they get a degree. The idea does or doesn't work. I don't know. But like, I always felt conflicted that you could have like a bad effect on someone's life. <laughs> um, and Sandbox kind of solved that because it allowed kids to stay on school, being in the class, extending their calendar years sometimes, changing their academic schedules so that they could accommodate these ideas. So it, it, it allowed for that. And what we did was we put in, we put in place this idea that, you, that the investors in the fund had a fiduciary responsibility to the student. When I invest in a company and I get shares, I have a fiduciary responsibility to all shareholders, right, as a board member. So I have to give the CEO advice and or make, you know, vote in such a fashion. But, you know, what you're investing in here, quote unquote, as an investor in Sandbox, as a participant, as a financial participant in Sandbox, you're investing in a kid. And when you give him advice, you better be thinking about the kid, not about your money and not about anything else. Um, and and we had it as a loose statement that you had a fiduciary responsibility as a student, but we had it very clear that if you ever broke that responsibility, you get kicked off campus and you'd never, you know, like MIT, you know, you, people would be pretty upset about it. And um, you'd get kicked out of the program. And lo and behold, that program now has quite a lot of investors in it. 
Um, it is a, a key part of the best company ideas. I mean, it's basically where all the startups at MIT happen because the kids can get the money so cheap and so easy. So investors in those funds have an advantage because they can see stuff a little earlier. And But they also just get to meet the students and mentor them and be around them. So it turned out to be quite a good, you know, it was, it was cool. You know, it worked out. It could have been a disaster too, but luckily it didn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, and some other universities have followed suit. Like Harvard now has a similar program. And I think Duke launched a similar, I forget, Cornell maybe. They were, MIT was approached by a bunch of schools trying to try the same thing out. So how do you see the future? What's changing in this decade in, in, in VC funding, startups, even biotech? What's exciting? What, what are you sort of your concerns? How do yeah, you it's a good question. I mean, you know, we're living at a time of cheap money, which is good because it makes innovation a lot easier, right? Because when money is cheap, is it People, cheap or is it just uh, there's been a bit more money printing and it's just, well that makes it cheap seems to you <laughs> yeah. maybe your your fund is a bit bigger so you know it's cheap for you now you know you've been so successful well, it's just easier to get because the government's pumping it you know like you know people can't you know normally people would put it in a savings account and save it or you know get a bond or whatever but they can't right because the government has made in almost every major country those 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 ways of like saving your money or creating returns are basically gone now. So the only way you can do it is put it in equities. And once the stock markets get, you know, they, there's a defined size of a stock market, a public stock market, once that gets too expensive and, you know, then people turn to the private market. So for a new invent, uh, for an entrepreneur, this is the best time ever to raise money. Um, I think that's true in almost every market. Um, valuations are up. I think that that is good, right? Because it gets people to try hundreds and hundreds of ideas that otherwise when money is scarce, only five or six of those ideas get tried. I do think that competition is very high now because of that. There's a lot more me too and copycatting that's happening. Um, I think that I, I'm, I think that as a consequence, a, a small sliver of these companies will end up being successful because there's so much extra stuff being generated. Uh, probably what I worry the most about is in my world, which is biotech is just the amount of the, it takes us a, probably a decade to train someone properly to be a good biotech scientist, you know, because it takes usually six or so years of, of graduate school training. And then another, um, three, four years of like being on a job and doing well and stuff. And then, you know, ultimately like, you know, you're a kind of, a, or, you know, your career is kind of moving and maybe you're not quite a mid-level manager, but you're getting there. But the, the, the salaries are because of that supply chain problem, you know, all of a sudden in the last two years or three years, a number of companies exploded. And I think in tech, you had a similar thing happen where, where the war for talent became very hard. But you had an ability to be virtual, so you had you know countries like India and and um, Israel and other places contributing huge amounts of talent to the global talent pool, and so companies in San Francisco were able to continue to like do well because of that. That's biotech is a little harder to do that because you know the work has to be done physical, you know, next to each other. Um, so that mobility is difficult, and and at the end of the day, there just there aren't that many people studying biotech all over the world. I mean, the U.S. is the dominant place. You didn't have like what IIT did in India and what 
the Israeli military did in Israel for building tech talent. I think it's just taking a lot longer in biotech. So I think in the life sciences, you're seeing a lot of more companies and people being, you know, there's a, and, and I worry that the quality of some of these products may ultimately suffer. We may have product failures. These companies may not do well because people just were put in positions of a little, you know, we're kind of, you know, the companies kind of grew too fast, grew too many people, didn't have the experience that's required. And in our world, biotech, especially biotech that meets medicines, um, that, that, that aim to become medicines, um, the, if I make a bad decision today, like in tech, you know, if I'm coding something or whatever, I mean, occasionally these problems can be downstream, but usually you find out in six months that the product had a bug or a flaw or whatever, our projects take 10 years. So you will find out eight years from now that someone made a bad decision eight years ago or three years ago or whatever. And it's very costly. And so the, you know, you don't, you don't get the feedback loops that you have in other industries. Um, and I think especially when it comes to manufacturing, it's a, it's a problem everyone's having. Like we just can't find enough good manufacturing people, good regulatory people, good, um, number of people, um, disciplines. And it's just because the, everybody expanded, but the talent pool doesn't grow as fast. And, um, yeah. And so I think the same thing is happening in Germany right now in the construction industry. <laughs> like it just takes a long time to train a good carpenter because of the, the, qual- the qualification process, et cetera, but people want to build houses now. <laughs> you know? So there's a long wait list and, um, yeah. So I think that's kind of what's happening in my world is like there's a lot of salary inflation, real estate prices are way high for rent and everything. And at some point, something's got to give, you know, I don't know what it'll be, but um, something's going to have to snap, snap things back into place. What are the exciting stuff happening in this decade in biotech? You know, you're in the field, so it's obvious to you, but. Uh, I'm not so familiar with the biotech, and I, I bet a lot of the listeners uh, it's the same. If you're coming more from the tech side, you know we're probably more familiar with AI, ML, and AR, and you know these these type of things. But yeah. what comes to biotech, w- what are the exciting fields, and we start to see them coming to the consumers as well? Well, I think the big, big, big revolution has been the ability to, um, in with with increasing levels of precision change the the code um the dna and alter and modify the dna of something whether that something is a patient that may have cancer or you know could have cancer in the future or whether that's like a virus that you know mosquito that you're trying to change so it doesn't carry a virus or whether that's like a cell in a dish or or in a manufacturing facility that would produce some chemical that you're interested in i think just the ability to do kind of precision engineering on biological systems it's an area it's been somewhat separate because people call it synthetic biology if you're not dealing with humans um or animals and like that and they call it kind of agricultural biotech if you're dealing with plants and humans sorry and animals and they call it like biotech if you're dealing with humans but fundamental to all of those is that you know you're you're doing essentially precision engineering on the dna on the code and, and just over time, it's the tools for doing that precise engineering gotten better. It used to be, you know, you'd maybe put a whole gene in or, you know, it used to be you would just like do empirical work and hope, you know, you would breed a bunch of things together and hope for the outlier. Um, then, you know, people got to genetic engineering, but now you're doing, 
a lot of you know very precise abilities to change information inside the DNA code. At the same time, probably relatedly, that you have so the tools are getting better, but the data is going up because you have so much more genetic monitoring. So all the diagnostic. I mean, look at the COVID thing. You know, the sheer number of you know sheer number of nucleic acids that were measured around the globe and are measured every day now to see if this virus, someone is infected with a virus is massive. Like that wasn't happening two years ago. Now, you know, but people were doing a lot more genetic testing and stuff, but it just took a, you know, it just exploded. So you, so I think that the combination of being able to test cheaper and cheaper and being able to change anything you don't like is just going to be profound, you know, at some point, it's going to run into the ethical considerations, um, you know, of humans. And, you know, do we want to look? I mean, at the end of the day, if you put a map up, I did this once at a talk I gave in, uh, at, at MIT. I put on a screen, like, you know, in one shot, like all the, all the organisms that humans have genetically engineered. It's basically everything but humans. I mean, it's like dogs, cats, like you name it. We've genetically engineered them. You know, bananas, like, you know, like there, there's basically been no, we have no shame in modifying anything. But the one thing we have decided not to modify is ourselves out of some ethical, some, some concept of ethics. Now, there's a lot of people that are pissed off that we're modifying everything else around us because, you know, they would argue that's not very ethical. Um, and then, you know, there is this force of people who, you know, will increasingly want to modify ourselves. It'll start as medicine, but it'll probably progress beyond that. So I don't know. I think, you know, you know, I think the ethical considerations of the ability to modify the environment around us and kind of create a designer environment is, and that's becoming increasingly in our control. Whereas before it wasn't really in our control. Like we could pick bamboo, like if I wanted bamboo in my backyard, I could get someone to get me bamboo from China and bring it here. But now I can create like fluorescent bamboo, you know, that, you know, I can do whatever the heck I want, you know, and now it becomes like I get to create, you know, not, again, I'm being a little bit futuristic, but theoretically I should just like be able to modify my environment. So it's a version of the AR VR thing, except in the living world. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> so I, I, my guess is actually it'd be interesting. I hadn't thought about it before. Whether the are there ethical dilemmas and questions and you know futurists wondering about where all that stuff goes, and since we're kind of talking about the same thing here, which is you get to live in a disconnected reality because you get to engineer your reality right now in the more physical world, the biological world, versus a digital world. Do you yeah, have I the same actually, problems? You know, I think we're sort of approaching the consciousness question quite you know deeply coming from the ai world you know it's like a generic you know ai then then there's also the um, quantum physics we're we coming to the point as well you know uh, that's that's been already happening yeah. for the last hundred years or so and and then it's like uh, what is a human is it, is it my part where is the human part you know when i'm a human when i'm not a human is, is, is the, the obviously the philosophical question in a way what is a house you know is it the windows is it the floor you know when when it becomes a house where is the person you know where are the limits you know how how much can can be adjusted or modified and, and what are the proper ways to do that and I, I think we sort of coming to these questions whether we want or not but it's just happening yeah 
Yeah. No, I think we're pushing, we're pushing the limits. It'll be interesting to see how, you know, it's going to be a complicated word world for our kids. That's for sure. What is your favorite word? Oh, my favorite word? Um, I don't know, hope, I guess. I, I kind of like hope. What is your least favorite word? Um, quit, I guess. I just don't like quitting, you know. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I think other humans. I think we've touched on that. Like, I think just, I find humans fascinating. What turns you off? Um, humans, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I think there's certainly a lot of cases. I think there was a French are... philosopher who was sort of, you know, giving that phrase as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, they're, yeah, I think probably the same. Certain humans definitely turn me off. <laughs> it would get me pretty depressed. Yeah. Every man, it's a probably, you know, thinks that sometimes, you know, <laughs> other yeah. people are the hell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's your favorite curse word? Okay. Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of fuck. Like, I think that's, so to be fair, I love it. It's a great word. Um, I use it all the time. My kids are always yelling at me. We have a swear jar. We have a menu system in our house where depending on how bad the word is that I use, it's always me that use bad words. Um, but if, for those of your listeners that are, that are from Mexico, the Mexicans have a word for, I don't know, like the same bad word, the F word. And, but there's a whole philosophy around it. Like it's, it, it, it can be a place. Like, it's really weird. It's like, you can say to people like, this is going to sound terrible. I mean, I'm not supposed to say this online, but like, Veta la chingada. Is oh, this, like, this is for, for yeah. you know, for adults. People, so for adults, yeah. Intent, you know, so like, they just use the, the word chingar, ching, uh, chinga is like, you know, there's just different versions of how they use it. That's like so much more sophisticated than the American. So I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, props to all the all the Mexican listeners out there. That's just an awesome culture around the word chingada. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? It's interesting, you know, and some of your listeners, you know, may relate to this. Is that when? And I know that there's only a period of time in my life. So I would say waves is generally been my 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 thing, like just the sound of like waves breaking, but. More and more, what I know is fleeting is what I call the sound of a house waking up because I have kids and like, and I, and that never used to be a sound I knew about. And then as my kids have gotten older and they wake up and you can hear them go downstairs and, you know, start to kind of like, you hear things like opening and closing and it's like a house awakening, you know, and, you know, in a few years that sound will be gone too. Right. You know, so I would say that that, I don't know if it's a sound specifically, but the sound of a house kind of coming to life is like, to me, awesome. You know, cheers me up whenever I hear it. Now I myself don't like to get out of bed. So I'm like, oh. but, <laughs> but everybody else seems to, I don't know. I just love the sound. What sound or um, noise do you hate? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think scratchy things kind of like very high pitched like screams kind of bum me out, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not super, People in my family would confirm I'm not very good with sounds and like pitch and noise, so I would say, yeah. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? To attempt? Um, well, you know, I think when you go through so many years of schooling, you always have this kind of fascination with being a professor. 
I was lucky to realize that I'd be very bad at it. So, but in the back of my head, there's always like this, wow, it'd be great to be a professor. Um, Cause it seems to have all these benefits, which I don't, I, I'm not sure about. Probably I think more than anything right now, I get a lot of comfort working, um, you know, kind of like around a property, like, you know, farming, you know, just like just a physical labor of being around um, livestock and, you know, and like trees and like plants and stuff. And, you know, I don't know if it would be super fun, like if that's all I did, but certainly as like my major distraction, that's probably my main distraction right now. I don't know if that's a profession that I would do if I, you know, if I didn't do this, but it's certainly like the hobby. It's definitely the thing I'm dreaming about doing (laughs) if I ever stop doing this. Um, and part of it is, you know, it has a lot less, you know, bat, you know, humans that bum you out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, trees are pretty cool. Like they, they don't mess around too much. So what profession would you not like to do? Would I not like to do? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, 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 da- you know, I interacted with, you know, I was in banking for, as an intern for six months and I, it just wasn't for me. And I think part of it, it's just going to sound really ironic to everybody that's listening. Um, I don't really, um, I'm not motivated by money actually. Like, you know, I went, I, I got into this business because I was going to work at the company and, you know, the company was doing something really interesting. And I ended up working on another project that was doing something interesting. We started a beauty company because I thought it was really interesting. We started an energy company because I thought the problem we were trying to solve was really interesting. Um, I guess maybe to be fair, I'm still an engineer at heart. You know, I like to fix things, you know, like engineers are like kind of built around fixing things, um, which is why maybe I wouldn't, I get bored being, you know, a farmer for too long. But, um, but I think that for me, banking just didn't have that. It didn't have a, problem you were solving you were just kind of like shuffling money back and forth for the creation of more money you know it kind of bummed me out i think yeah, it has a, a different others. meaning if you say you're fixing the interest rate <laughs> yeah exactly you know they you know we would claim that we were fixing clients problems and in some cases we were definitely but but the motivate but you know i mean a doctor in many cases you know like they're of service you know you're sick you know, whatever, you know, they're trying to fix something. Yeah. You know, it's true. They have other complexities, you know, they've got a big student loan, they've got to pay off their wife wants it, you know? So yes, like there's some abuses in the American system, but broadly speaking, if you're sick, you know, and certainly around the world, we've noticed this, like, you know, the medical profession stepped up to the plate, you know, they stepped up to the plate and saved all our butts, you know, the last two years. I don't know. Have you had a banking crisis where all of a sudden a bunch of bankers like stepped up to the plate and like <laughs> saved us all from like some bank? No, actually, never. They're running the other direction. Like, <laughs> so I don't know. It's just it's not for me. <laughs> It if makes could, other people happy. It's just not for me. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? Yeah, you asked me that question. I think when we, we were first talking about this, I mean, I saw the list. Oh man, you know that's a tricky one. Um, I mean, I would say that um, it, I still don't have a good answer for you because I think that there are so many companies that have kind of changed. See, I consider technology to be magic, right? In the sense that, like, you think you know, you don't think humans can fly and then you see an airplane, you're like, oh my God, humans can fly. You know, 
like the first time, like I used an iPhone, I was like, ah, oh, how do they, how do they figure out like where the pizza place, you know, it just, it was stuff that wasn't possible before and suddenly became possible. I think that, you know, there, I think that it would be fun to have seen what it was like. I think probably like Bell, it's not so much being a founder, but I think being at a place like Bell Labs would have been really interesting. I think being at, you know, essentially General Electric when Thomas Edison was there would have been just like really interesting because, you know, it was a time of like solving a lot of problems. I think that if you look at start, I think Apple is a really interesting company as is Google because they do dabble in so many different things, you know? And so I don't know, I think it would be just really fun company, you know, that, you know, to have been at the front end of a company that shaped a whole industry. And I think there, I can't think of like one company like that. I think, unfortunately there's quite a few of them and, and increasingly with more and more speed, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I think it would have been fun. I remember one time, it, and, you know, the humility of some of the people involved in these efforts is, like, unbelievable. I remember I was at a meeting once with Peter Chris. So Peter Chris was a partner at Venrock, and incredible, one of the first partners at Venrock, an incredible gentleman. And one of the first VC companies in the world, more or less. You know? Yeah, very early, very, very yeah. early. And um, nicest guy, too, just a gentleman, you know. And I remember we were, I was at this meeting with him. There was 20 of us, maybe 30. And everyone is sitting there on their iPhones. Everybody had an iPhone at that point. And here's the guy that wrote the first check to Steve Jobs. Like here, he's there. He's got his own iPhone too, but he's just watching everybody. He never had to say, he, he, you wouldn't have known it. Like he never had to like say, hey, I'm the one that did it or whatever. It was just like amazing to me that it was you know, obviously Jobs and Wozniak and those guys were the ones that created that company. But, but you know, he had a pretty important part in that. Like he gave, you know, I'm sure he had a lot of interesting discussions with them. And you would never have known it. And the nicest man in the world, humble, thanking me for inviting him to this gathering. Oh, it's so nice. I'm thinking like, what are you talking about, man? Like every single one of us is using a product that you bankrolled, you know? So I don't know. I, I think it would have been you know, it would have been fun to have been at Microsoft and and Apple just because of the sheer dysfunction of those early companies, <laughs> like the chaos, you know, like that would have been fun too, you know. Um, I don't know. I think they're all cool. You know, I like all startups, you know, because um, they're just like very, very entertaining to be there in the early days. But probably I think working with Edison would have been, I just, it would have been interesting to see like what that was like. Um yeah. yeah, there was so much stuff happening at, you know, at the turn of the century there, and, and it was quite quite revolutionary thing, you know, yeah. that hasn't happened before, you know. We've been now having electricity for a long time. Well, internet yeah. didn't happen, but, you know, some yeah. of these things are, like, happening here for the first time yeah. as well. I think Netscape would have been good, too, because yeah. I think that would have been a fun place to work early on, too. Any final yeah. words to the audience? No, I mean, th you know, I, I guess, you know, your audience is you know, it sounds like mostly entrepreneurs. I just think that, you know, people, it's a tough, it's a tough life, but it's a fun life. It's very rewarding. Um, and, you know, thanks. Thank you, I guess, to everybody that's listening for keep trying at it. You know, it, it won't always feel great, but when it does, it's amazing. And I think fundamentally the world is better because of all the efforts, not all the achievements, because the achievements, yeah, okay, that's easy, but 
it's actually all the efforts that create all the achievements because the efforts as a whole that you wouldn't get the achievements if you didn't have everybody trying right and a subset are going to work but not if everybody's not trying simultaneously to push on this thing and so whether it's better energy solutions or better medicines or better tech you know products um better you know ways of you know growing things and you know whatever I just think you need you, everybody needs to be pushing in that on all that stuff to make the world better, and the world is getting better. I mean, it's getting worse too in some ways, but it's it's certainly everyone wants to make a better world, and and then more than ever, I think in history, people are like really thinking about the planet and trying to make it better, which is amazing. Thank you, Amir. It's always such a pleasure and privilege to talk with you. I, I think uh, I would at least you know would go on for hours. Yeah, no, this is fun. Thank you, Petri. Really appreciate the questions. And just before we go, I just want to remind our listeners that uh, if you've been listening to this thing, uh, this episode, you can also go to YouTube and check it out. A few of the latest episodes are also as a video format. Uh, thanks for joining and until next time.